Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hey, everybody. This week, it's actually Life Science Marketing and Sales Radio. I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to talk to Mike Camerata. He's a very experienced salesperson in the industry, and we're going to talk about uh, the seller's selling process, but more importantly, the buyer's buying process and how those things are different and why you need to think about them, whether you're in sales or marketing. So that's going to be a good one. I think you're going to enjoy it. Next week, I'm going to the ACPLS annual meeting in Boston. That's the Association of Commercial Professionals for Life Sciences, if you haven't listened to the podcast before. Uh, lots of great sessions, not too late to sign up. You can go to acp-ls.org, click the link that says annual meeting, and you can join and register on that page. So I hope to see you there. Now let's jump into it. Today I'm speaking with Mike Camarata. He is currently retired, but has a lot of experience in life science instrument sales. He's been a sales manager or director at Pharmacia Biotech, Perkin Elmer, Teledyne Isco, has previously had a consulting company for 10 years in the past, and now is uh, generous enough to come on and share his experience about selling and how marketing ties into that um, for everybody listening to this podcast. So, Mike Camerata, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Thanks very much, uh, Chris. I'm happy to be here. I really appreciate this. We've uh, You may be the first actual salesperson I've had on here, at least <laughs> no one with that much experience. Uh, oh, Chuck, Chuck Drucker, I'm sure. Um, okay. Today, we're going to talk about the customer buying process. So this is a maybe a 40-minute to one-hour sales training, but it'll be also useful for marketers to think about what would be useful for customers at each stage of that process. So we'll go through that process, and then we'll talk about the fundamentals of good selling. And then um, we'll also talk about the importance of market share. So this might, uh, I don't know yet, turn out to be two episodes. We might split that in half. But those are the topics that we're going to cover. To be clear, we're not talking about the selling process. We're looking at this through the eyes of the customer. So, Mike, where where does that buying process begin for a customer? Well, uh, Chris, I think a good idea would be to take a look at both processes just from a, a very brief point of view so that we're all on the same page. Both processes coincidentally have eight steps. In the selling process, the steps of preparation where a a salesperson tries to learn as much about the environment they're going to go into before they go. Uh, the introduction, which states the purpose for the visit and what both the customer and the salespeople hope to get out of it. The most important part in the process that I believe is the qualification process, where the customer learns as much about what's going on in the salesperson's in the in the customer's environment, so that they can do the right thing for the customer uh, and present the product in the right light. Then uh, they actually develop a presentation and uh, talk about the product with the customer. And then ultimately, whatever objections the customer might have have to be dealt with in the overcoming objection stage. Ultimately, we get to the close. There's a delivery and installation support, assuming the sale is made. 
and then whatever post-sales support needs to happen. But that's a process that's been taught for many years and is pr primarily implemented from the salesperson's point of view, where the buying process is from the customer's point of view. Very different uh, objective and a very different perspective. The first stage of that process we call blissful ignorance, where the customer is just going to the lab on a day-to-day -day basis and doing the work they're supposed to do and are not faced with buying a pro product that the customer, the salesperson might be wanting to sell. Ultimately, they might recognize that there is a problem and think about how they might approach that problem, whether or not they choose to solve it or not is still at issue. And if they do decide to solve that problem, they're going to look at concept choices, which are different ways that the problem can be solved. An example I always use for this is the example of a cloudy solution and how that cloudy solution can be clarified. And simply put, it could be centrifuged or it could be filtered. And filter salespeople have to know the benefits of filtration and the downside of filtration. And centrifuge people have to know the benefits of centrifugation and the downsides of centrifugation and be able to discuss both for uh, the filtration and centrifugation no matter which product it is you're selling. Ultimately, the customer makes a vendor choice based on a variety of criteria. And then from a, a group of, uh, a large group of vendors, they select maybe one, two, or three vendors to actually make presentations or do demonstrations or provide samples. And from that group of one to three, they make a selection. They make the, go through the commitment process, which is placing the order, preparing the lab to implement the decision. And then um, ultimately they do tracking. They see, they make a decision as to how the decision was made. And if they were faced with a problem like this in the future, would they in fact do it the same way again? So traditional sales training, the sales process says that if you do the process correctly, at the end of the process, a sale comes out. And those of us who've been in sales long enough know that's very rarely the case. There's usually other things that occur. So by understanding the buying process, you can ally yourself with a customer, put yourself in their point of view, look at the problem from their point of view, and they'll feel a lot better about a relation, having a relationship with you. Not to say they shouldn't be skilled in sales processes because, as I said, the qualification step is kind of the critical step. Yeah. All right. I love that. So now we, uh, we've laid it out how salespeople prepare to look at this and how uh, customers are looking at it. Let's walk through that customer buying process. Imagine I'm a salesman. I walk into a lab or a department and my potential customer is still at that blissfully ignorant stage. So we're, I'm assuming we're lucky enough to get into the building. How do we start well, with that? Well, when a customer is in the blissfully ignorant stage, the last thing they want to hear is a product presentation. So it's important to keep that in mind. But let's assume that a salesperson is interacting with a potential customer, maybe one they haven't interacted with much before or they're meeting for the first time. I would suggest then they have a discussion as to what's going on in the customer's lab. What are their objectives? Uh, what, where are they at in the process now? Where are they uh, having difficulties? Where are they having successes? They should be able to know as much as possible about what's going on and what it is that customer is trying to accomplish. They might ask about what techniques and products they're currently using. 
and uh, if there are any obstacles that they're facing. And then once the salesperson has that information, they could discuss from the vendor's point of view how that vendor company is positioned to address the issues that the customer is talking about. Okay, and so we're early in the buying stage. What types of marketing materials as a salesperson do you find most useful at this point? I think the, the piece that would, I would find most useful is something I call a wave the flag piece. This is a, kind of a history of the company. It discusses how the company was formed, why the company was formed, how long they've been in business, maybe some key scientists that have joined the company and uh, are well known in the industry, uh, any prominent staff members, any innovations they may have brought to the market, what commitments they've made, commitments to R&D, commitments to the industry, com commitments to um, social issues. There's a whole list of things that they could be discussing. And what their corporate philosophy is with regard to customer satisfaction, customer support, um, and how their tr sales forces expected to interact with their customers uh, in a truthful and forthright manner. I like that last part. So I'm going to challenge you a little bit on this, and not that I know, but you know, I hear a lot of people talking about I mean, the customer might not be interested in the history of your company um, and might instead like to have a piece of content that is relevant to the types of problem they're solving, to make them think about it in a different way. So how, how does that fit in? Well, I think that fits in a, a, a large part of the uh, Wave the Flag brochure could be uh, a list of applications that have been successfully completed with the products involved. Uh, customer references, customers, uh, any letters, any information that the customer has provided to show how well the company's product has served the laboratory that they work in. Okay. So let's move on to problem identification. The customer realizes that some part of their job is not what it could be. Either something's not working or they have read somewhere that somebody else has a new way of doing something that might be better. What, what does that sound like from the salesperson's perspective? Well, one of the things a salesperson might ask a customer is, in a perfect world, is there anything you'd like to see better happening in your laboratory? And a customer potentially could say things like, uh, it would be great if, or what we would really need would be, or I wish our current system would do whatever. So there's a list of, of trends of, of, of uh, not tr of a list of uh, opening statements that a customer could make that would indicate that they're thinking of buying something, but they haven't really come to grips with actually doing it yet. Right. And so I imagine not being a salesperson is pretty tempting to say, I know exactly what you need. Uh, but why is that? Why would that be a bad idea at this point? Well, just because a customer acknowledges there might be something that could be done better doesn't indicate that they're now committed to making a purchase that would solve that problem. It's kind of like a, a everyday living. We run into situations all the time, whether it's in our house or in our car or even with our health, where something isn't perfect, but we don't just get up in the morning and start the car and hear a strange noise and drive right to the mechanic. And uh, the same noises could occur in the house. You just don't start calling contractors and getting bids and things along that line. 
and even your health, you feel bad, but no one, very few people, just the hypochondriacs, run right to the doctor. So jumping in with too much too soon, trying to get a, a product positioned in the customer's mind, is pretty much telling the customer that early conversation was just kind of a, a feint to get me to open up a little bit, and now they're going for the the power close, and those those activities really turn a customer off. They begin to believe that the salesperson's objectives are overriding the customer's objectives. Yeah. Then how does a, what would a skillful salesperson do to present concept choices? So laying out not only what they're selling, but educating the customer on all the possible solutions uh, to essentially well, put themselves on your side. Sure. It, it's, it's, the first thing to do again is to, this is kind of like the qualification step in the <clears throat> excuse me in the selling process. I think it's important for them to ask the customer what are they considering, what have they done in the past. So, are there any cons- potential solutions that they're considering as a solution to the problem they're facing? Then it's important to find out everything that they're considering uh, about that problem and tailor the presentation to that. So having the knowledge of what's going on, having the knowledge of any competitors that they might be considering, having the knowledge of any competitive uh, techniques that they might want to be used, it, having that knowledge is better than being surprised and going off and making a presentation. And then you hear, well, I've, I've heard that these other things are better. It's better to know what's going on in that customer's mind. And even if they're not aware of all the potential solutions, the concept solutions, it doesn't hurt to bring them up because in a way, it shows that you're not just looking to get your product in there over any other potentially better product. It's a little like the old Gimbals and Macy's old time. You know, it never hurts to know what's going on in the customer's mind with respect to other possible vendors. Nice. Yeah, I'm a- this comes up over and over again and in marketing and I'm sure in sales, it's just having the confidence to talk about something other than your own product and knowing that if yours is the right solution, that's the right way to do it rather than try to hide, you know. I, I've had people say, oh, we never want to mention that other product as if the customer couldn't discover it themselves. Yeah, they all have the same website. Yeah, yeah, that, those days are gone. You know, right. people don't have parity of information. So um, at this point, uh, marketing materials, um, keeping those folks in this conversation, uh, what what's helpful here at this concept stage? I don't know that there's a really good piece for concept selling because I don't know of any company that would produce a piece that would actually discuss competitive products or competitive concepts. So I don't, I don't see that that's a really uh, something that the marketing department is going to develop. But at any point, it never hurts to have that wave the flag brochure where you're bringing that back in because it's got those applications that have successfully been completed with the product that you're selling. All right. What about, uh, I'm just going to ask... What if a, could a company create a document that said, here are 10 things you should think about if you were trying to solve this problem, for example? I think that would be a good way to approach something like that. That could be a one-sheet piece. 
Exactly. And if it doesn't always lead to the answer that it's my product you should be thinking about, it needs to be somewhat unbiased. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, for instance, if we go back to filtration versus centrifugation, they have uh, a lot depends upon how large the sample size is. So if we're not talking about uh, a 125 milliliter Erlenmeyer flask or something cloudy, but really a, a 50 liter carboy, then you've got a different problem as to filtration or, or centrifugation. So it, there are some concepts that will have benefits over others just based on the specifications of the experiment going on. Right. So I imagine uh, there's not always a concept choice, right? I mean, um, in many cases, in, in, you know, if you're analyzing something or, as you say, centrifugation versus filtration, but in some cases, the type of solution you're going to buy is obvious and, and you're already down to making your company choices, right? Yeah, you're, you're pretty much so. Uh, there are a lot of applications that are very concept specific. But in, in the years that I've been in the business, I've watched some interesting things happen that are a little bit outside the box on this kind of a conversation. But uh, one of the concepts I've seen was homemade, homegrown, home-built. Uh, I remember UCLA having a, a very large uh, department that was committed to building equipment that scientists could use in the laboratory saving them significant amounts of money over manufactured equipment. So sometimes you need to uh, uh, understand that concept and why that might be difficult or why that might not be the best possible choice uh, for a customer. Also happens a lot in homemaking reagents versus custom prepared reagents uh, is a concept that often happens that uh, needs to be addressed. Yeah, I'm sure there are many people who decide for budget or other reasons that we're just going to make our own solutions and from from scratch. Um, all right, so now we're on to vendor selection. How do you help a customer in this process? Of obviously, you want to end up being one among those two or three being considered, and this is a critical point in that relationship. You want to win trust, but you also want to win. So what separates great salespeople at this point? Um, well, let's, let's uh, uh, first say that I don't think a salesperson should ever do anything to win the sale that would jeopardize the trust the customer would be placing with them. So one of the, as a sales manager, one of the rules uh, that I asked all of our salespeople to live by was no uh, deceiving, no leaving out important facts, no activity that might ultimately come back and make us look like we had done what many customers expect salespeople to do, is misrepresent their product line. But uh, that, should be, that should be well understood. But at the vendor selection stage, the, really the product isn't the issue yet. The product doesn't be, uh, uh, become an issue until that that stage is over. We're going to talk about the uh, with a customer what their key factors for success are in the work that they're going to do, uh, and they might have a wide variety that can include anything from a company's reputation, or is the product built in the United States, or uh, can I get rapid service, 
how's your post-sale support? What a lot of things would happen, including delivery. At this point, the salesperson should be prepared to marshal whatever resources that they have, and if it's post-sale service that a customer is really concerned about, it might be a good thing for the salesperson to bring in a, a service engineer or a service manager to have that discussion. Or if it's post-sale support uh, field application specialist, if the company has one, to bring those people in and have the customer meet the people that they're likely to spend more time with after the sale than before the sale. Uh, also, some of the criteria in reagent selling occurs particularly with large-scale reagent use, whether it's frequent over-the-year constant buying of the same product or use in some sort of production or pre-production laboratory scenario. Delivery, on-time delivery, and lot-to-lot reproducibility become really key, uh, key factors for success. And it's important to identify those. And then you can position your company with respect to those key factors for success. Um, those are the important things that you really want to be discussing at this point in time. And then when the customer actually chooses you as a potential vendor, then the product comes into play. I, re- I really like that. Um, you know, we get so focused on the product and what it can do and seem to forget that there is so much more to this thing. Um, You know, the difference between products is rarely as big as the difference between companies based on all those factors you just listed. Uh, You know, in every marketing meeting or, or sales meeting I've ever been in, the term key factor for success comes up frequently. It's one of the great buzzwords of sales and marketing. And we have to think about that from a customer's point of view as well. They'll have key factors for success. Yeah, I think that that might be the the big takeaway of this whole conversation. I don't even know what the rest of it is yet. But, um, yeah, there's so many other ways to differentiate yourself, and it's really important to find out what, what the customer cares about with respect to all those variables. All right, now we're going uh, to the evaluation stage. The customer's testing their your products and everyone else's they're making comparisons and of course there are hopefully you know demos if it's a large enough uh sale what else is going on and how can marketing be most useful at this stage well i think at this stage uh the best thing that marketing do can do is to make sure that a salesperson is equipped to do the demo in the best possible way and that includes a variety of things, like making sure that the, the product that's sent into a laboratory for a demonstration is fully functional, fully cleaned, fully uh, equipped with whatever spare parts or reagents are necessary to operate it completely, and in fact, a clean and comprehensive instruction manual. So this often makes a job well done be easier to do. Uh, they, the salesperson should be trained. They should be, at least be able to do basic troubleshooting in the case of the often inevitable follow-up. <laughs> uh, in fact, we used to say it's best to have two people go to a demo from the vendor, uh, one to actually run the system and the other to divert the attention of the potential customer when something goes a little bit wrong. So it's kind of almost invariable. And there's a variety of things that happen. Uh, the shipment could be lost or damaged in, in, 
in delivery. And I've seen some of this happen because some companies insist on shipping demo equipment around the country from, from sales rep to sales rep in cardboard boxes that have seen better days. So, you know, what a marketing group can do is put together a really good demo presentation kit, whether it's a, a crate, a crated piece of equipment that really protects the unit, uh, pre-ship any necessary spare parts or reagents that have to be done so that they, they don't have to be made at the time of the, uh, the demonstration. Uh, nothing hurts a demo wrong more than the unit is there and it's beautiful, but a little spare part is missing that's in, integral to running the unit. So, and there's yeah, all I mean, that's other foul ups that could happen. That's the first experience your customer's having, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not pretty. You can't get your own people to do it. Like, why would they, you know, why would you expect them to do it for you, for them? Um, all right. Let's hope all that goes well. Customer decides they're going to buy your product. What do salespeople do immediately following? And this is one of my favorite parts of marketing is how do we make a customer really happy right from the beginning? Well, anything that a salesperson can do to help implement the order, make sure that uh, quotations are done correctly and delivered to the right people. Uh, I often tell salespeople it's... Uh, they're his, historically, they like to give quotations to the end user customer that they've been working with. But uh, it's also often important to know um, that the purchasing department is involved. And if you ask them, they believe they should get the proposals or the quotations and that those um, the customers can get a copy of it. They don't have a problem with that. But that's, you know, there's a pr proper procedure at every institution for how those things should be done. And then ultimately, when the product is delivered, that it's delivered on time, that it's delivered working, that it's delivered safely, uh, that it gets to the right spot in the, in the institution that it's supposed to get to. And that from that point on, that there's constant follow-up. Now, I don't mean every day, and it depends upon the, the, the customer and the sale and the, uh, the dollar volume, of course, has some factor in it. But on a regular basis, someone checks in with that customer just to make sure that the uh, expectations that the salesperson had helped that customer develop are being met. And if you keep checking up with the customer and saying, things still going, going well, it's kind of like that serving person in a restaurant coming over and saying, how's everything tasting today? And we, want, we like that when that happens as customers. Yeah. Um, all right, so now um, customers bought the product, the salesperson's done a good job following up, making sure that, um, I think it's really important just to say differently what you just said, um, that the customer knows that if they do have a problem, you're going to help them with it, you're not hiding from them. So that's, right. and uh, that the, you I know, really one like the, that. One of the things customers will tell you if you ask, that they've put a lot of faith in the salesperson when they've made a decision to buy from your company, perhaps for the first time. And when they, there is a problem, they want that salesperson to be involved, even if it's only on the phone or preferably visiting the laboratory, to take ownership of the problem and not to just uh, subcontract it to a, another person in the company 
that may or may not understand everything that's gone into the process of buying and selling and what the customer's expectations are with respect to uh, what the salesperson's promised. Yes. So assuming that all goes well, now uh, we've reached a new steady state and the customer is back to blissful ignorance. Right. When, when is a good time to ask for a referral? And since I suspect scientists are hesitant to subject their colleagues to more sales calls, <laughs> what's the best approach for doing that? Well, I think if you've done a, a credible job and that the customer is extremely happy with the with the product and with the results of ownership of that product. It's fair to ask a customer, well, Dr. Jones, you've been working with this product now for about six months and it's, it's really worked well for you and you appear to be really happy. Uh, do you see any way that you might be able to either write a letter or be willing to talk to another customer uh, about your experience with this unit? I promise not to, uh, you know, have this happen every day, but every once in a while, maybe have a discussion with another potential customer and tell them about your experiences. Or if you would just write a letter and put it there, I could just give that to other customers. Or would you be willing, in fact, to refer me to one of your colleagues who might be interested uh, in a similar technique? I think that's a fair thing for salespeople to ask. If they've done a good job, if they feel that they've done a credible job, there's no reason why they can't ask for uh, a little quid pro quo for the job that they've done if they've made the customers work that much better. I think a lot of times they're a little timid about asking because they're afraid to hear no. And no probably means they didn't do as good a job as they thought they did. So Right, but still better to know now, right? So. Right. So if they're saying so that's you know, an opportunity, I, if they don't want to tell another colleague about their product, okay, maybe there's some work going on that's secret, that's uh, confidential, and they don't want to talk about that. But overall, I think you know a customer, particularly academics, industrial customers, we pharmaceuticals and other you know, agricultural chemistry, <coughs> they're probably looking at a completely different set of regulations from their company as to what they can do. But when you're talking to an academic customer, highly likely they would be more than happy to share some knowledge that doesn't compromise their work. Yeah, so we've covered the buying process here, but um, some of that these days because of the internet and the availability of information may have already been invisible to a salesperson. So when you first come across someone, they might be well into this thing already talking to other vendors. That's right. What, how do you get ready for that? Or how do you find those people? I know uh, when I was in marketing, salespeople would always tell me, if I knew about that deal, we could have won it. But uh, you know, there's a lot that goes on without us being aware. Yeah, I think, think that's the case is, uh, uh, I always say there's a lot more buying processes going on than selling processes. It's everywhere. <laughs> you know, and one of the things is you give a, in some cases, I remember my my first job, uh, my company moved me to California and I had 13 states to cover. And I'm sure there was a lot of the business going on in there that I never heard about. And it's just impossible for one salesperson in an environment, whether it's that or just the island of Manhattan that you've got. You'll never hear about everything that's happening. So 
whatever the the company can do to uh, uncover potential customers, whether it's trade shows or brochures or the websites or uh, any any other you know uh, electronic media, go and please do it. We'd like to hear about it. Uh, but we often get the salespeople on the other hand often get a lot of leads that have uh, what appears to the salesperson to be no reason that they got a, that lead. There's no way this customer was going to buy. And I think part of that problem stems from the fact that uh, the customer may have just been doing an inquiry in part of their vendor selection process and they're not willing to talk to a salesperson yet. So they give them that classic objection that the salespeople hear all the time, I was only gathering information. Well, it's funny, but I, I, I don't know that there's a, a, an international literature collectors club. <laughs> and I've never seen uh, people go to a hotel room and trade a, an HPLC brochure for a microscope brochure or anything that indicates that there's some collectibles activity going on in this. So ultimately, they've asked for a piece of equipment because at the time, it seemed like something that might potentially solve a problem. But it just means their unwillingness to talk about it at this point in time may just mean that they haven't gotten to uh, the stage of their buying process where they're really willing to interact with vendors. Right. The International Association of Tire you don't Kickers. Any literature, do you, Chris? <laughs> no, I do not. Okay. I don't think. I mean, not that I'm not at least curious about something. And yeah, I I try to avoid it. So, um, just reviewing your general tips, putting yourself in the customer's shoes, establishing a bond with those people, like being a friend of the customer. Avoid trying to sell a product right off the bat. Um, getting a common an understanding of the common object, objections and doing the right thing at the right time. Yeah, those are all um, pretty critical points. And and I, I still want to say that the, the selling process has skills involved in it that still need to be done. But if, if you do the buying process, you're not going to be always doing trial closes, for instance. That is a common sales training technique. Uh, to get them to, to move the customer faster. You're going to close on what's the next step of the process that I can help you do. And that's a lot easier because you would ask a customer a closing question like this. Dr. Jones, we've been talking about this piece of equipment now and you seem to have an interest and maybe some idea that it would be helpful in solving your problem. Dr. Jones, what's your next step in this process? And if you find out that next step, then you can help implement that step to completion. But if you don't know that next step, you're going to come back and say, we talked three, three weeks ago. What are you up to? What, what do you think now? Are you ready to buy? And the customer will give you that, I still need more time to think answer, which is another dreaded answer that salespeople hear all the time. Right. And not very helpful, I'm no. sure. Let's wrap this up with... Um, what happens when the sale doesn't happen? So you get to the end of the process, you don't make the sale. What what do you do Well, next? I guess a lot of it depends upon whether or not someone else made the sale. If so, if another vendor got the order, that's that's one thing. But if if uh, 
you, you might need to reevaluate how you went through the process and whether or not you did it from the customer's point of view or you raced through it to get to the end so that you could get to where you want it to be. But if you didn't get the sale, uh, and maybe it's because you followed the selling process more than the buying process, and when you get to that at the end of the selling process and you don't have a sale, you don't know what to do next because you've done everything. You really don't know where to go. Everything's been done. So one of the outcomes of something like this is that the customer buys from a competitor or is seriously considering buying from a competitor and they tell your salesperson that. They tell the, the salesperson that. And now the lab becomes a battleground. My product's better than his product and that kind of uh, dialogue, which again is another thing customers really don't like to do. Uh, and then if, if ultimately the sale is lost, you know, a salesperson has to go back and tell their sales manager or whoever's following prospect uh, development that the sale was lost, a sale that was probably reported as 80% to 100% sure thing, and now the sale was lost. Uh, so now they report that, well, the, the customer, the, the competitor cut the price, which often didn't happen, so. Yeah. Well, Mike Camerata, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to end this one here and we're going to do another episode. So um, folks should tune in again. That'd be great. We're going to talk about market share and why that's so important. Well, you heard me say that I'm going to continue this conversation with Mike in the next episode. So make sure you're subscribed so you can come back easily and listen to that when it shows up. As always, I really appreciate you listening to the podcast and I appreciate everyone who have told their friends and their colleagues about the podcast. If you haven't, find two people who can benefit from the podcast and tell them about it. That's how we grow the audience, get more people on the show, keep this whole thing rolling. So thank you very much for all of that. And I will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.